Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. In his latest book, Greg Mitchell lays out a detailed behind the scenes account of Hollywood's first movie about the atomic bomb, a docudrama released in 1947 under the title, The Beginning or the End? Mr. Mitchell has used the same title for his fascinating look at the first efforts of American media and culture to process the atomic age. And he's subtitled his, How Hollywood Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. It's published by the New Press, and it brings Greg Mitchell to our show. Welcome. Leonard, thanks. Uh, happy to talk to you again. This story includes an incredible cast of characters. Louis B. Mayer, Albie Wallace, Ayn Rand, President Harry Truman, J. Robert Oppenheimer, Albert Einstein, General Leslie R. Groves, James Agee. But didn't it begin with a letter to actress Donna Reed from her <laughs> former high school chemistry teacher, yeah. Ed Tompkins? Yeah, he, he'd been a scientist true. at Oak Ridge? That's right. Yeah, he was part of the Manhattan Project. Uh, of, of course, the, the uh, two bombs had been used at Hiroshima and Nagasaki in August of 1945. And um, Hollywood had not yet started work on a, a movie drama about it, believe it or not. And uh, two and a half months later, um, Donna Reed, uh, who was a young actress at the time, um, received a letter from Ed Tompkins, uh, who was her high school chemistry teacher, who actually had a big influence on her. And he, in his letters, uh, he said, uh, we, uh, you must help make a movie that will be serve as a warning to the world about the path we are on uh, with the atomic bomb, with scientists at Oak Ridge and other sites uh, are against uh, mil further military uses of the bomb, and you know we're heading for a nuclear arms race and uh, maybe the end of civilization, et cetera. And um, you know, fortunately, she was well-placed because her husband was an agent, and uh, he went to Louis B. Mayer at uh, MGM and um, said we should make a, you know, make a movie that will serve as this warning about the making and the use, use of the bomb against Japan. And uh, Louis B. Mayer said, uh, you know, I want to make this a big-budget film and uh, the most important movie I've ever made. And so it started out on that path. And uh, basically the book is about uh, the how that particular movie got uh, – Say they use the word subverted or perverted into a uh, pro-bomb uh, propaganda uh, after the extreme involvement of President Truman and uh, you mentioned General Leslie Groves, the head of the Manhattan Project, and and others. So it was turned completely on on its head after that uh, involvement. Um, so it, it, the book is really about how that happened, but also at, at that whole era, that that first two years after the use of the bomb. Um, so I get into all the, all the other things, including John Hersey's article and other things that happened that um, raised questions about the use of the bomb and then were squashed. And uh, basically, we've gone almost 75 years now um, with this Hiroshima narrative, as they call it, uh, justifying the bomb, justifying building more bombs, justifying the hydrogen bomb and the nuclear arms race. So this uh, movie was very much, you know, very much a part of that. Now, it took 18 months to be made. Is that typical or was it because so many people got involved? Yeah, it was long. They, you know, I think it hurt them in terms of box office in the end because, you know, it was supposed to be one of these urgent movies. And, you know, Hollywood churned them out pretty quickly then. Um, but it got the MGM was a factory with some of the biggest yeah. stars in all of Hollywood. Yeah. So it was, uh, yeah, it was very much delayed by all the revisions, uh, you know, grows. Uh, who was given script approval uh, and a $10,000 check as chief advisor, which is 
worth a hundred money nowadays money hundred and thirty thousand dollars um, submitted and, and achieved uh, literally dozens dozens and dozens of, of changes and then in in kind of the uh, climax of the book um, Harry Truman got involved and ordered a costly retake of the, the key scene in the entire movie where he he justifies the decision to use the bomb, and that caused another you know delay of a couple months. So, uh, and, and why so, yes, did what did he object to? The way he was being portrayed, the way he was being depicted, was he? Yeah, not, yeah. Uh, they, well, they wanted to, you know, the, uh, the the again the Hiroshima narrative, which was there from the very from the very beginning, the very first day of the day after the bombing, was that. You know, we 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 had to drop the bomb. We had we uh, it was dropped on basically military cities, not you know where uh, so many civilians lived. Um, and it was the only thing that had, that could end the war. It's the only thing that did end the war. And that you know Truman had you know pondered it deeply and you know made this difficult choice. And uh, so the movie it was necessary for the movie to adhere to that fully. And um, you know we can talk later if you want about various falsifications and omissions. Sure. There were we will. there we have errors of time. omission and errors of commission that were that were made. But it, it, like I said, the key scene then was with Truman basically putting out for all time for 75 years now his uh, reasoning for using the bomb. Now was Louis B. Mayer aware that Hal B. Wallace was developing his own film version of the story at Paramount? Uh, they, they weren't at first. It was, uh, you know, uh, it, it, when the press found out about it, they called it, you know, the first, first race or nuclear race of the of the age. New York um, Times wrote a big article about it. Yeah, I called it the Adam sweepstakes, and they they loved they covered it as like these two, two giants, you know, fighting to be the first with a bomb movie, and of course the, uh, I mean, the most interesting thing about it, which I, I cover at the. A good length in the book is that uh, Wallace chose for his screenwriter Ayn Rand, and of course most people aren't even aware that Ayn Rand was a screenwriter at all. But she had she had written uh, two or three screenplays already for Hal Wallace uh, at Paramount, and uh, so he called on her to you know to write the script for this uh, atomic bomb movie. And you know as I detail in the book, I, I was given. Um, you know, access to all of at, in, at the Motion Picture Academy Library, access to all of her notes, her her um, outlines, uh, and then the first drafts of her script, which was really wild. Um, but well, does uh, that you know, choice she, of, of her, an ultra conservative novelist, indicate that Paramount wanted its film to be very much in support of the use of nuclear weapons, unlike the original intention? Of the MGM film, well, it, it's hard to say. I don't. The Wallace was not did not have a high political profile. Um, if anything, Louis B. Mayer was uh, was famous as a right wing uh, conservative Republican, mm. um, and um, so that might explain partly why the MGM movie then got twisted. Um, I think Wallace, you know, Ayn Rand was uh, had written um, The Fountainhead. And um, it was being made into a movie for Warner Brothers, and it was back on the bestsellers list. So she was very hot at that time. Um, and so I just thought, think he thought, hey, you know, um, maybe she could do a great job with this, whatever her philosophy, her philosophy is kind of off the rails. But, um, but, um, but as I detail in the book, uh, eventually when he read her scripts, he then hired another writer as an alternate and 
ultimately threw in with MGM, abandoned his project. Ayn Rand then was very angry about it, but she then turned to writing uh, a little book called Atlas Shrugged. And um, inspired so to some degree okay. by her research on, yeah. on, on that screenplay because she had talked to J. Robert Oppenheimer and she based one of her characters in that right. drugged on, on Oppenheimer. Which yeah, a character? guy named Robert, the scientist named Robert Stadler, who develops a death ray. Um, and uh, yeah, again, that's uh, her interviews with Oppenheimer are just you know remarkable. And uh, Oppenheimer is is another key figure in the book because uh, you know people we'll love get to him. Yeah, people he, love Oppenheimer. He, he doesn't come across as well as yeah. I would have imagined. Such a but we'll get to that figure. Okay. Meanwhile, MGM signed Bob Considine, the author of 30 Seconds Over Tokyo, to write its version. Do we know what he thought of the project originally? Uh, I I don't know. You know, I mean, these people were, you know, workers for hire. Considine had written uh, 30 Seconds Over Tokyo, a uh, famous, uh, famous book. Um, he was a Hearst uh, columnist. You know, uh, some of us uh, of a certain age remember him very much in the 50s as a TV personality, he was on TV all the time as a uh, as a guest or a panelist and things like that. But he was uh, uh, before that he was a very famous, popular Hearst columnist, uh, and uh, you know quite conservative and basically a Hearst type reporter. So um, he uh, again, it's it's you, you kind of start with this MGM movie coming from the scientists, um, and it. Just every move that uh, MGM made, uh, you know, hiring Considine, giving script approval to Groves. Uh, they sat down with uh, with Truman himself, who actually provided the title for the movie. And it's it was just um, the scientists were just kind of left in the dust. And uh, in fact, you describe what happened as a series of battles between the scientists like Tompkins and J. Robert Oppenheimer who were advocating the control of nuclear proliferation and the deployment of nuclear weapons and the military led by General Leslie R. Groves, who had been the head of the Manhattan Project and the Truman White House. Now, right. the, uh, the, the, the scientists wanted the film to reveal, as I said, the true horror of nuclear war, but didn't the military want to justify Hiroshima and Nagasaki and undermine calls to place nuclear weapons under international control? Yeah, well, that that's exactly right. Uh, I mean, they're in some ways separate but equal uh, causes. Um, you know, there were um, I mean, there were people who were extremely concerned about the future of nuclear weapons and uh, building an H bomb and everything else who might have felt, well, you know, OK, we use them against Japan and it seemed to end the war. You know, it's not so bad. Let's not use them again. Uh, but then there were others who recognized immediately that uh, dropping these two horrible weapons over the center of two cities, killing uh, probably 200,000 civilians, um, was evil. You know, it was it was immoral, and that in no way should that be endorsed. And again, that's without making a big uh, sidelight into this, but that's what's driven my own work. This is my third book uh, on this uh, subject. I've written. Mm -hmm. Uh, about uh, hundreds of articles about this over the last you know, three decades, and but it's kind of driven by the fact that this does matter today, because we, you know, the U.S. today still has a first strike policy. It's what's called first use, and that mm -hmm. gives the president the the authority and the the backing to 
anytime he wishes to launch a first strike, not in retaliation for an atomic ta attack. Uh, it could just be in. It could even be in response to what he perceives as a threat. Uh, that, and this was initiated with uh, Hiroshima, and uh, has been endorsed by uh, most in the media. Certainly, most among officials. Um, every year we'll see it. We'll probably this is the 75th anniversary, um, and we're going to see it again this summer, I think. And, and so that's why the the book matters uh, and the story matters because we still have this policy today. And and every time we endorse the use of the bomb in 1945, we're saying you know exceptions can be made. Uh, we can use this weapon to save American lives, and um, and so that's the message that they wanted to keep in the movie for, uh, for certain. Well, how far into the Cold War were we when all of this was happening? This is pretty early in, uh, in, in the history of the Cold War, I imagine, but was that a consideration? Well, of course- uh, The you Soviet know, we, Union as, as the next threat, our former ally? Yeah. Well, you know, as, as you know, uh, we were allies with the, the Soviets in World War II, but the, by the end of the um, by the end of the war, we were already growing more concerned with them than with Germany, I think, and um, and so that spilled over into this this period. So there were, there was no sense that you know uh, you know it's much too long a story to go into, but you know there was great debates over should we share the secret of the bomb with the Soviets and you know show them that we're you know we're showing them some trust and we want them to be allies going forward and so forth. But of course that was nixed uh, very quickly. And so we entered this uh, post-Hiroshima era very much knowing or, or, or designing to have this uh, continuing confrontation and conflict with the Soviets. And uh, um, there was a difference of opinion on how soon they would get the bomb. Truman met with Oppenheimer and said never. Uh, mm -hmm. Others said, well, it might take 10 years. And, of course, it ended up much less than that. But, um, and that's you know, a whole it, other it, story. Yeah, yeah, it's, but it's certainly oh, that this, the background of all this is we have to defend the use of the bomb. Uh, we have to defend building more bombs because we're we're going to be in this conflict with the Soviets, and we can't. You know, the scientists, including Einstein, Einstein most famously uh, was you know a campaigner for the uh, international control of the atom and you know one world the kind of concept and sharing uh, sharing this uh he was the probably the most famous uh, famous campaigner for that and um but after a couple of years you know thanks to this movie and a bunch of other things that really died out we're speaking with greg mitchell whose latest book is the beginning or the end how hollywood learned to stop worrying and love the bomb published by the new press this is leonard located at large on wbai new york 99.5 fm so um how far into the process did the film become a defense of the use of the bomb and imperatives of, of post-war politics uh did you, you mention that mgm gave script approval to, to general groves and even paid him uh, so did he see this as a, a kind of a propaganda thing? Well, I don't know if he would would have used that term. He certainly saw it as, uh, he said from the very outset, this film must reflect positively on the military. Um, it must, you know, uh, be a positive presentation of, of what he called the facts. Um, and so that was his, his goal. And in going through the, the, 
script, and I again I went through all the scripts of which, of which there were dozens of uh, versions, and um, you know Groves uh, nitpicked you know just tiny little things, things about himself. For example, the one script showed him uh, asking a couple times for chocolate. And, he was uh, an overweight want, guy. Yeah, he didn't want that put yeah. out. He, so he cut, cut even that. Uh, he had there was another another scene with his top aide who was with his girlfriend at home uh, cooking, you know, help, helping out with the cooking, and uh, was wearing an apron in the kitchen. And he went, yeah. no, I didn't. He didn't want his aide shown with wearing an apron because it was unmanly. So there was, uh, you know, kind of trivial things like that. But then it went right up to. You know everything about the make uh, the making of the bomb, the decision to use the bomb, uh, and we, which Groves was. Uh, most people don't know that Groves uh, not only helped or ran the project that made the bomb, but was a tremendously important player in Truman's decision to use the bomb uh, and in the targeting of the bomb. And he had various uh, great quotes in the book where you know Groves referred to Truman as just a, like a boy on a toboggan. Um, Saying there was nothing that that he didn't Groves didn't interfere with that he directed uh, he pretty much directed Truman down this path. Truman was just a you know a, a bit player and, almost. And J. Robert Oppenheimer, he felt that he had uh, pretty much had to yeah. keep him uh, on target. Yeah, but yeah. I mean, so he, Groves is an incredibly and I mean he's the most important. If you if, if you want to say that. Uh, Besides directing the project, he also directed the use of the bomb, and then he directed, uh, you know, building more bombs afterwards. He also was uh, the key figure in, in publicly dismissing the dangers of radiation. After he made made sort of made fun of uh, Japanese, uh, claiming they were uh, suffering from radiation disease, saying he he heard it was actually a very pleasant way to die. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of Trumpian, one might say. Uh, but, well, I see um, a lot of parallels. Uh, as yeah. the story progresses between the past and the present, because so many yeah. people are aware of their own image. Uh, you mentioned that Truman um, got, got involved. He ordered the firing of the actor playing him because he lacked military bearing and also demanded some revisions in the scripts as well as a retake of a scene to make his decision-making process to use the bomb look better. Right. Yeah, that, that happened... Uh... In October, I mean, the movie was supposed to have already come out by October 1946. And um, so there was a screening in Washington, and uh, Truman's uh, press secretary, Charlie Ross, attended. And um, he was alarmed by the depiction of Truman's decision. Um, and uh, Walter Lippmann, actually, the famous, most famous newspaper columnist at the time, also expressed, uh, expressed alarm, uh, more, actually more that the movie was so bad. Uh, <laughs> That, uh, but um, anyway, Ross uh, then took he had this, got the script, took it to Truman. Truman, you know, looked at it, and they uh, ordered the retake of this uh, entire scene that would set uh, set the uh, Truman at Potsdam, where he met with with Stalin in real life, and um, would show uh, Truman explaining to Ross. You know why he made the decision that they, they were going to go ahead with the the bomb, and uh, you know the the uh, kind of very revealing thing about it in a way was one of the aims was to make it look like Truman was so you know pondered it for so long and was you know mm-hmm. uh, had sleepless nights he said in one of the one of the scripts about one of the one of the script things, um, 
but you know, in reality, you know, Truman famously said uh, for the rest of his life, never had a sleepless night over it. And he was asked on one occasion how quickly he made the decision, and he snapped his fingers. So they didn't want that. They wanted the image to be that the the U.S. did everything possible, considered every option, uh, did not rush, um, you know, before using the bomb. And uh, so that was the real purpose of the retake. As for Truman getting the actor fired, the the excuse was that the actor lacked military bearing, which was kind of laughable because. The actor was only filmed from behind uh, by <laughs> orders of the White House. You know, they had ordered said you, if Truman appears in the movie, you can only film from behind. So um, there's some some speculation by me that uh, they the actor playing him, the original actor, was was indeed probably a member of the Communist Party USA, and the White House may have found that out and so decided uh, they wanted to get uh, wanted to get rid of him. Didn't uh, the president even suggest a title for the film? Yeah, when he first met with the MGM producers, he said, uh, you know, uh, make your movie, gentlemen, and alert people that uh, we're either at the beginning or the end. And uh, the MGM producer allegedly said, thank you, Mr. President, you've just named our named mm-hmm. our movie. And um, indeed, that's, that's what happened going forward. But, you know, they were, that by then... Just by meeting with Truman, they were uh, sort of asking for getting his approval, and then they were kind of stuck with submitting you know, scripts to the White House and doing whatever was demanded. Now, uh, you, the MGM and the military argued over deletions, revisions, retakes concerning fact versus fiction. This is more than just uh, images. Uh, I'm right. assuming that the military and the White House usually won, or did they always win? Well, I, I would say they almost always won. Some some things where the MGM came back and said, well, you know, um, you know, if you think about it, this decision's not there, this isn't really necessary because of such and such, or uh, we've made this change elsewhere, and I, I think we can live with this and things like that. So certainly anything important was, uh, you know, was dealt with. And, um, but along the way, what happened was was falsifications really crept in. And just to give you a couple examples, because they're they're very revealing again of this um, this justification justifying the the use of the bomb. Um, you know, when um, the bombings actually took place uh, almost 75 years ago, Hiroshima. Um, you know, it was a total uh, uh, sneak attack, you might say. The bombers went flew without any opposition straight over Hiroshima, dropped the bomb, left, no trouble whatsoever. Um, Hiroshima was never alerted. It was came out of the out of the blue. Um, in the movie, they had to make it uh, seem like um, they wanted. To, let's let's say they wanted to uh, make it seem as as brave and risky as possible, and they didn't want any really comparison to let's say Pearl Harbor. So in the movie, as each script developed, uh, suddenly we started getting anti-aircraft fire introduced. And then we had flak and heavy flak as the, the brave pilots neared Hiroshima. Finally, and then they introduced, the Japanese fighter pilots came, approached them. Yeah, then fighter pilots appeared in the distance. And, um, and, uh, and then while they're on, the, on this flight, one 
character turns to another and says, well, you know, we're about to release this bomb, but, you know, we've been dropping millions of leaflets, warning them for weeks. That's more warning than they gave us at Pearl Harbor. And, of course, this was a complete fabrication. We had, we had dropped some leaflets earlier, but they didn't warn of a, a new bomb. Um, but each of those changes, as you can see, were meant to make, well, this uh, was a very risky and you know, people, you know, they, you know, it was a, a very brave and, and noble operation. And, you know, we dropped, gave, them, gave them warning leaflets and so forth. So um, that's the kind of falsifications that were introduced always, but always in one direction, which was in the direction of, of justifying the use of the bomb. Now, weren't uh, leaflets actually dropped, but days after Nagasaki was right, bombed? Right, right. Yeah. A lot, a lot was made that we warned Nagasaki. And indeed, by after uh, destroying Hiroshima, we did print um, millions or you know, a very large number of leaflets um, to drop over some of the other Japanese cities, warning, okay, now you've, you know, we've exploded this new weapon and we may drop this new weapon on you. Please tell your government to surrender. Uh, mm -hmm. It's very understandable. Um, but, you know, so, the, the problem with Nagasaki is the leaflets were not dropped till the day after <laughs> Nagasaki was destroyed. So it uh, didn't really accomplish its purpose there. Did they protect themselves by opening the film with a notice that indicated that it was basically a true story? Was that an admission that they'd taken many liberties with the facts, despite promoting it as a docudrama? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I suppose I, I don't think anyone paid any attention to that, it, and it was, it was certainly promoted as a, you know, as a docudrama and true events. Uh, and in fact, the, um, I mean, I, I found a letter uh, from the, the, the man who uh, actually armed the Hiroshima bomb. Um, who wrote Groves and wrote MGM, desperate to get them to change what what is kind of the most dramatic scene in the entire movie, which is um, there's a, there's a character, a young scientist, who's the only one who ever raises any qualms about using the bomb, and they show him he's the one who's arming the Hiroshima bomb, and there's an accident, he gets exposed to radiation, and he dies. Um, it sends a letter to his wife, etc., um, and um, so this, the man who actually armed the bomb says, surely you can't present this scene as, you know, uh, that this happened. It's such an outrage. It's a, it's, it's, it's a, if, if anything like that happened, General Groves would have been, you know, fired. And it, it's just a, it's a terrible thing. Uh, but MGM uh, refused to, to cut it or change it at all. So they did have this slight, um, as you note, slight note at the very beginning but that didn't really uh, didn't really cover such a such a monumental uh, screw up as that as what was pictured there. That, despite the fact that, as you mentioned earlier, uh, Groves argued that claiming radiation was a threat to the Japanese bomb victims was propaganda or a hoax. Now, right. uh, seeing those words, I was wondering whether he's writing speeches for some of today's politicians. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, propaganda I, I, hoax. <laughs> yeah, it's I still being he, used. Groves is definitely a Trumpian character, and 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 even like it went, it went in in terms of the movie. It, there was no you know no second thoughts about introducing falsifications. I mean, here's this movie. They couldn't just let it tell the story as it was. The script was kind of bad enough as it was. 
Um, but they had to keep introducing little details that, um, you know, uh, and, and taking things out. I, I, you know, I mentioned earlier the, the, the sins of omission. Um, in the early scripts, they, they depict uh, the Nagasaki bombing. Um, and, in fact, they're, they're, the early scripts show that they were very well aware that the Nagasaki bombing, in, in, in some people's minds, is, you know, it was a true war crime. That they, if they could accept, they could accept the first bombing, but the second bombing was, you know, was extremely challenging morally. And so, and the early scripts sort of went out of their way. They, they felt they had to, they had to, you know, mention or show the Nagasaki bombing, but they would set and it and up. And what happened to Japanese civilians on the ground yeah. after the bomb but, was dropped? Right. That was cut out entirely. Yeah, that was. But the the, 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 amazing, the amazing thing was, was in the end, they 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 felt that any mention of Nagasaki was too troubling, and so they just cut out any you know any reference. It's like it, you could watch that movie; you'd never know there was a second a second bombing. And uh, and again, as you as you mentioned, the early scripts had um, did show uh, the uh, some of the victims on the ground, or they had you know U.S. Uh, generals walking through the city and. You know, seeing some terrible sights and so forth, uh, and that was cut out entirely. So all, the only thing you see in the film is the the vantage point of the the people who dropped the bomb, looking down on uh, a city on fire, uh, and uh, and then it's over. There's no Nagasaki, and you know the war is over, and and um, the bomb is, uh, is 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 hailed at the end. And the coming era, nuclear era, will be wonderful and be the greatest thing God uh, even invoked God. God has given us this this path to uh, this greater world, and uh, we're we're so fortunate. One of the B 29s of the movie bears the name Necessary Evil. Now, that wasn't on the real plane, was it? No, it, it, you know, the funny thing is, eventually it was. What what happened was uh, at the time of the bombing, which they depict in the movie, it just had a serial number. Um, and then after the, you know, long after the bombing, I guess they were so proud of it, they, they, uh, you know, wrote, they changed it to giving it a name, uh, Necessary Evil. But of course, in the movie, they they wanted to show it with that. Again, it's kind of a message to the message to uh, viewers that uh, you know the bomb was necessary, even though you know you you could say it's evil, but uh, it was necessary. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM. Anytime. But before we get back to my conversation with Greg Mitchell, I'd like to take a couple of minutes to ask you to consider contributing to this station to help us get back on our feet because this pandemic has had a devastating effect on our circumstances. We need everyone who tunes into Leonard Lopez at large and is able to donate to please step up right now by, uh, Going to our website, give to wbai.org. That's given in the number two wbai.org, or by calling 516 620 3602. 
to help keep this show and the station on the air. And one great way to support WBAI without having to pay a lot of money at any one time is to become a BAI buddy. Uh, there are listeners who contribute $10 or more each month, 10, 15, 20, whatever they're comfortable with, to become a BAI buddy. And anyone who does that will, it's a good way of, by the way, showing support for what we do on this show. Anyone who does that signs up right now to become a BAI buddy will receive a copy of the book that we're discussing, The Beginning or the End, How Hollywood and America Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. A great way to support this station during this difficult time and also get to read about this fascinating untold bit of American cultural history. And joining me now is my executive producer, Jesse Lent. Hi, Jesse. Hi, Leonard. Yeah, that uh, it's hard to top what you just said. That pretty much sums it all up, except to say what an important subject this is. This is for anyone who's ever tried to make the case that America has a long storied history of propaganda and that Hollywood is one of the, has over the years been one of the major producers of it. Here it is in 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 writing, in proof. But this is also such a fascinating story, as anyone who's been listening for the ha last half hour knows. We've got a lot this. more to go. We've got a lot more story to tell. And we want to let you get back to that. But as you said at the top of the interview, I mean, all of the, the, the people involved in this story are, you know, Hal Willis, this, this Trumpian kind of character, all the studio heads, you know, the Louis B. Myers. And, and, and this is the golden age of the, the studio system. It is just fascinating to see the kinds of, or, or hear about, I guess I should say, the kinds of conversations that were going on in the smoky back rooms of these studio lots. And, I'm sure that in the next half hour, it's only going to get more fascinating. But Leonard, as you know, as well as anyone, there's only so much you can get to in an hour. So why not pick up the book and support what we're doing on the show at the same time? Again, the number to call is 516-620-3602. Or you can go to our website, give to WBAI.org. Uh, you want to Jesse, you've been looking at the you've been looking at the numbers. How's this fun drive going? You know, I have to say, Leonard, we are not where we'd like to be right now, but part of that is completely understandable. Not only are a lot of people hurting right now in this pandemic, but we know that this fun drive has been going on for weeks now. This is because it is the only option right now. You know, I think I've said this before on the air, but when you're watching TV or listening to a commercial radio station, it's not the same what Leonard and I are doing right now as say a commercial break. When that commercial break ends, the check is in the mail to that station. Uh, when we say we need your help, we only are able to survive if someone says, oh, okay, I can help. And you know what you're doing when you step up and make that contribution, it's not just you, right? You're joining this community of listeners and you're supporting someone who's listening to this show right now who isn't able to donate and we completely understand that as well so and, why not... and one more thing jesse of if somebody course. has already become a, a member during a previous drive or just become a member because they felt it was important to support bai and has uh and that was a while ago 
Um, how about renewing your membership? People this just is your kind renewal of message. Yes. Yes. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I, I just no, thought I, I just want to make sure I want to put a pin in this book so we can, you know, in this conversation, in this offer, so we can let you get back to your interview with Greg Mitchell. But just to be clear, what we're asking you to do is become what we're calling a BAI buddy. That's a sustaining member of the station who makes a contribution of $10 or more every month in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. If you do that, you'll get the book Leonard's been discussing today uh, with our guest, Greg Mitchell. That's the beginning or the end, how Hollywood and America learned to stop worrying and love the bomb about this first attempt to put, uh, or, or attempts, I guess I should say, to put the atomic bomb into a film by Hollywood. And, uh, it's a great way to support the station, to support us. If you're not able to do that particular offer, whatever amount you can uh, contribute at this time, it all helps us. And and we always love it when fans step up. And the best way to, to, to let us know you're a fan is to make sure that contribution's in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. Let me give the number out one last time, Len. This, please call 516-620-3602 or go to the website, give to WBAI.org. That's give, then the number two, WBAI.org. As we've been saying, we really need you now more than ever. It, 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 you know, our support is, is in a very tenuous place right now. So please make that call. And from all of us at the show and at the station, thank you so much. And your support allows us to continue to bring you these long-form interviews on topics that we hope will be of interest to you. Thanks to all of you who have become members already. Uh, if you're about to do it, thank you as well. Again, 516-620-3602 or go to give2wbai.org. And do it right now if you want to become a sustaining member and get a copy of Greg Mitchell's book. Greg Mitchell's, uh, the author uh uh, of a number of books. So we're discussing the latest beginning or the end, how Hollywood learned to stop worrying and love the bomb. But he's also written The Tunnels, The Campaign of the Century, A Tricky Dick and the Pink Lady, So Wrong for So Long, and with Robert J. Lifton, Hiroshima in America, and Who Owns Death. Uh, this is Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI, New York 99.5 FM. What about the casting? Um, MGM had so many famous actors. Uh, weren't uh, MGM stars like Clark Gable or Spencer Tracy the original choices? How did they wind up with lesser known character actors like Brian Dunleavy and Hume Cronin? Not bad actors, but definitely not stars. Yeah. Well, uh, that's uh, that's still a bit of a mystery. Um, I think it was partly because, you know, so much time started passing that the major stars were uh, committed to other projects. But it's also because they um, they saw this movie as as one of the, actually what would have been one of the, the first examples of what came to be known as the docudrama genre, um, and um, they you know they didn't want to overwhelm this very serious uh, what was supposed to be a serious story with uh, you know distracting you know Clark Gable um, and. Um, and so I think that it was part of the plan was to not not to do that, and also they they had spent so much on special effects uh, in showing the 
the two atomic blasts, the first one at the uh, in the, the desert, the test, the Trinity test, mm. um, and then the uh, uh, bombing of Hiroshima. Of course, they didn't didn't bother to have to do the Nagasaki bombing, but um, so they spent a, spent an unusually large amount on special effects and. Uh, so um, I think it was a combination of things, really. But but it's true there was no no giant big star attached. Well, there was a later anti bomb movie, uh, Fat Man and Little Boy, and Paul Newman played General Groves. Yeah. But that movie wasn't a hit either. Yeah. Well, you know, it was the director Roland Joffe, who had made The Killing Fields uh, and other movies, um, really set out to to make a um, more of a uh, bomb skeptical anti-bomb movie um, but he or whoever was doing the casting made the fatal mistake of making Paul Newman Leslie Groves and a, mm -hmm. an unknown named Dwight Schultz as Oppenheimer and um, the, the gap in, in quality of the acting and the theme just overwhelmed the movie so that the people would have would have gone to the movie and uh, certainly sympathized more with Paul Newman than White Schultz. So now, for in in the film that we are discussing, weren't there also difficulties in obtaining approval from Oppenheimer, Einstein, and other scientists for their on-screen uh, depictions? Yeah, I think I think it's one of the most fascinating things in the book, and it's kind of a continuing story. We come back to as the book rolls on is the the studio uh, felt it needed, especially again. Remember, this is a docudrama, not a fictional movie. Well, it, actually, it was pretty fictional, but it was not supposed <laughs> to be a fi fictional movie. Um, and, they weren't presenting so, it as a fictional movie. Well, so they wanted to, uh, and felt they needed to depict these super famous uh, figures attached to the bomb. And um, and so they desperately wanted to get the uh, contract uh, signed by Einstein, by Oppenheimer, by Enrico Fermi, by Leo Szilard, another famous scientist. Um, now, this would be a contract with no money involved, as with Groves. It would be a contract with no uh, script approval, but they wanted to get them to sign away the rights to be portrayed in the movie. And so, but the scientists were all skeptical about the movie when they when they saw parts of the screenplay. They were appalled. And so MGM had to keep trying to wear them down to, you know, finally sign this contract. And after months and months, they, they finally did get uh, the key figures to sign. Um, Oppenheimer, we mentioned earlier, uh, a key, key fascinating figure always. And so they, they really made a special effort to, to uh, flatter him. And well, he doesn't come off as well in the story as I might have expected. Were you surprised to learn how ineffectual he was throughout the entire movie-making process? Well, not. I mean, I, I've read enough about Oppenheimer in the past that it didn't surprise. It might. It might surprise most people, but um, you know, uh, Oppenheimer was, uh, you know, sort of famously conflicted, morally uh, confused. You know. Um, making ponderous, uh, you know, statements that could be seen as uh, that he had uh, regrets and, you know, blood on his hands and uh, that he had known sin, as he put it. But then on the other hand, pushed, he would say, well, you know, we had to make the bomb or we, it was an incredible thing we achieved. And um, uh, so this came across in his relation to the movie. He, he wanted, in, in a way, he, he wanted to be a part of it, 
he found the script horrible, you know, laughable. Um, you, 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 you say that he that you uh, found some of the material from FBI surveillance of him during that period, and a, and the phone taps, including one where he talked with his wife about the film's laughable weaknesses. Yeah. Well, so he was being the... trailed. Tra he was being followed as a possible communist spy. Well, the the the, the three leading or the most famous scientists, Einstein. Zillard and Oppenheimer were all uh, being uh, surveilled by the FBI in this period, right? Either even before the end of the war, and then in this post-war period, they were all viewed by J. Edgar Hoover as uh, security threats. They were all viewed as being, uh, you know, too far left, uh, being possibly uh, sympathetic with Russia. Of course, Oppenheimer had special problems because. Uh, he had, if he never was a member of the Communist Party, he was certainly uh, friendly uh, before the war. His brother was a Communist Party member. His wife was a Communist Party member. His his mistress was a Communist Party member, uh, and he got involved. Uh, you know, he was friendly with with, with obviously all these people and other uh, friends, um, and so he more than anyone raised you know raised alarms. But nevertheless, he was cleared to work. On the Manhattan Project, he you know, was the father of the atomic bomb. Um, but after the war, there was tremendous fears about him and and even Einstein and and Zillard. And so that, you know, Einstein's ma mail was opened, Zillard was followed, uh, you know, in the, in the streets. Oppenheimer was also followed, and his phone was tapped. Hmm. So some some of the material in the book comes from uh, transcripts I found that. Um, of FBI phone taps that finds uh, Oppenheimer talking about the movie and making fun of it. And, you know, so, uh, you know, needless to say, it's an incredibly interesting uh, picture of Oppenheimer and, uh, and that, that, that year after he became the father of the atomic bomb and what, you know, what he was, uh, what he was up to. As you mentioned earlier, the film included claims that our use of the bomb was necessary because Japan was close to building its own nukes. And, and there was a scene where a German scientist arrived by U-boat in a cove near Tokyo to bring nuclear secrets that would allow Japan to quickly build an atomic bomb uh, for itself. Um, the uh, Interesting, the scientist was to be taken to the main Japanese lab <laughs> in Hiroshima. So I guess... Yeah. Uh, that was justification again for dropping the bomb. Yeah, well, that you know, even though that scene was cut, you know, it was too much for Groves. You know, Groves was going through all these, uh, all these changes and all these scripts, and that that was even a little too much for Groves. Uh, but the fact that they kept introducing, um, literally every month, uh, another reference to what if, what if the Japanese have the bombs, or the Japanese have the bomb, and they might greet our our troops uh, with uh, their own atomic weapon. Uh, and then you mentioned this ultimate scene with uh, the Japanese nuclear plant in Hiroshima. Mm -hmm. Now, all this is complete fiction. You know, the Japanese yeah. did have a, a stillborn atomic program, never came close to making the bomb. The U.S. knew this. Um, it was never a question of Japan having the bomb. Uh, but the fact that they kept introducing this, even though it didn't make the final film, again, reveals so much about how, uh, you might say, oddly defensive. I mean, here, here was this use of the bomb that, that at this point was still very popular uh, in opinion polls with the public. 
very popular with the media. Um, no, you know, not that many people were challenging it, and yet they still felt they they felt so defensive about it, so threatened by uh, any truth about it, that they had to go to these these uh, incredible extent to you know to offer these rationalizations for for it. Now, MGM claimed in its promotional materials that it would the film would make history. What kind of reviews did it get? Because uh, you cite a number of bad ones. James Agee, for example, gave it bad reviews in Time and The Nation, and, and Life magazine actually um, made fun of it. But uh, were some reviewers positive about it? Yeah, the, I mean, uh, there were. I mean, there were a smattering of positive reviews. There were a lot of, I'd say, respectful. The New York Times, uh, you know, sort of had. Um, you know, we call mixed, I guess, uh, mixed reviews. Uh, they were not all negative by any means. Um, and the, uh, and then the box office was not great. And again, it wasn't a, a complete bomb, uh, so, so to speak, uh, at the box office, but it was, uh, you know, it didn't do really well, it lost money. which was, uh, And, rare, and rare, I mentioned that damn. mocking picture essay review in Life magazine in March, 1947, which dismissed it as pseudoscientific pap and said, quote, nuclear physics in the movie was often simplified to the level of the erector set, yeah. adding that the there's plenty of movie hokum here. So, uh, and, and they point out that there was a, a scene in which a scientist's wife um, uh, showing some leg, uh, although he's always too busy with plutonium to even pay much attention to her, uh, that wife uh, is at the Lincoln Memorial reading a final letter full of, of quote, flossy but trite hopes for a better world. And then, well, yeah, that's the, that's the, the incredible uh, final scene, of which which is, you know, is kind of worth a book in itself, maybe. But um, this scientist we meant I mentioned earlier, who had some qualms and then dies in this radiation accident. Um, you know, right, writes of the, on his deathbed, writes a letter to his wife, and the, the final scene in the movie. Um, shows uh, his best friend uh, delivering the letter to to the the wife who, who finds out that she's now a widow and uh, begins to read this final words and, and now the scientist who had qualms throughout and lost his life in a nuclear accident is now in this letter telling her that uh, yes he had these doubts but now he sees God has given us a way to a path to the future that'll be so great and you know the nuclear energy and the bomb and everything is terrific but you know the creepiest thing about it is that as she starts to read the letter that the dead scientist himself appears as a ghost mm -hmm. and starts to read it himself to her so you and and <laughs> the kicker is the entire scene takes place on the steps of the lincoln memorial so um you know as i note in the book at least link they didn't have lincoln say something but uh, you, you might expect Lincoln to weigh in himself uh, if you watch that <laughs> final scene. Now, Luce was not exactly a liberal. So should we be surprised that both life and time uh, saw through this film? It's hard to say. You know, um, again, James Agee had a big effect on that. Uh, he, he wrote the Time, the time Review, and though he's not credited, uh, and he was very, uh, I mean, he's such a fascinating figure himself. He, he actually wrote the only um, fiction or short story that we're aware of uh, in the aftermath of Hiroshima, this very real science fiction uh, short story that is really wild and but extremely 
critical of the use of the bomb and the people who built it and people who ordered it used. Um, and I'm not sure if he was involved in the life piece at all, but, um, you know, it's hard to say. I know what, what the, the book also notes that uh, uh, Luce was uh, very upset that John Hersey, who wrote his famous uh, New Yorker piece on Hiroshima, um, which I go into a good deal in the book, um, that uh, Hersey basically worked for Time Life, but he, he wrote this major piece for, for the New Yorker. So Luce was very mad about Hersey and very mad about the, about the New Yorker. But how that spilled over into critiquing this movie, I'm, you know, I'm not quite sure. Well, I have to leave it there, unfortunately, although I think the book also uh, it reveals uh, that the long history of American myth-making mechanisms that distort our history is nothing new. Uh, we're seeing it again today, unfortunately. Thank you so much for being on our show. Greg Mitchell's uh, latest book is The Beginning or the End, How Hollywood Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. It is published by The New Press. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you, Leonard. It's always, always a pleasure. And that brings us to the end of today's show. If you're new to our program and you like what you've been hearing, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as an iTunes podcast. And you can also find links to all of our past shows on our website, LeonardLopatAtLarge.com. Don't forget to check out Leonard Lopez at Large on Facebook and Twitter. And if you'd like to write to me about this or any of our other shows, my email address is LeonardLopez at WBAI.org. Before I sign off, I'd like to take one last minute or so to ask for your support for this station. If you care about Leonard Lopez at Large and all the other great programs here at WBAI, we need your help to keep the station alive. We rely totally on our listeners for our support. Don't take ads. Don't take any funds from anybody else. So please step up right now to make a contribution at whatever level you're comfortable with. And as I mentioned earlier, if you become a BAI buddy right now by making a monthly contribution of $10 or more in the name of Leonard Lopez at Large, uh, you will receive a copy of Greg Mitchell's The Beginning or the End, How Hollywood and America Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. But you have to sign up to become a BAI buddy right now in the name of Letter Copate at Large. So please go to our website, give to WBAI.org or call 516-620-3602 uh, right now. Uh, please be sure to make sure that the contribution is in the name of Letter Copate at Large. And from all of us on the show Thanks. Join us again tomorrow when Larry Ty will discuss his new book that in some ways continues the story we've dealt with today. It's called Demagogue, The Life and Long Shadow of Senator Joe McCarthy. We'll see you then.